morning, everyone. If you got your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, uh, where we left off last week, and we will pick up and go through verses 6 through 13. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Fall. Let's begin reading in verse 6, which is where we, uh, we covered this verse in, in pretty good detail last week. Let's pick up here. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, we, we've talked about this a, a, a couple of weeks ago. You'll notice, look at the, the language there. She gave to her husband who was with her. Now, I do not believe that Adam was with Eve when the serpent was talking to her. Now, there are some commentators and people a lot smarter than me who think that he was with her, that Adam and Eve were there together when the serpent was talking to Eve. I, I just don't believe that. I, I can't buy that. There are a few reasons why. First of all, if you look at verse 1 through verse 4, and you just read it naturally, you'll see things the serpent said to the woman, the woman said to the serpent, the serpent said to the woman... If you just read that naturally, it, it comes across as a conversation between Satan and the woman, right? I, I, it just, there's no mention of Adam anywhere in there. So just a natural reading makes you think it's a private conversation. When you get to verse 6, you see these, these two words, so when. So what this does, it leaves open the possibility that there was a gap of time, and I think a probability that, that Eve was, you know, the serpent is talking to her, and he's tempting her, and then she's, she, she walks away, and she's got some time to think about it. Which, by the way, it's usually how temptation works, right? It doesn't just start, oh yeah, let me just sin, you know? It's that thought process, and you think about it, and it takes a little bit of time. So I think it's fairly probable that there was a, a gap of time between the, her temptation and the moment she decides to eat the fruit. But there's a scripture in the New Testament that really cinches this for me. And this is Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.14. And he says this, now listen. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In other words, the Bible tells us very, very clearly, Adam was not deceived. Now, I want you to think about that for one second. Put those two things together. If Adam was with Eve, and he's sitting there and he's listening to the serpent... Paul says he was not deceived, which means everything he heard, he didn't buy any of it. In fact, he knew the serpent was lying. Everybody with me? And he didn't say anything? He doesn't do anything? That makes, I mean, that just, I just can't go down that road. That makes no sense to me at all that, that, he, would, that he would do that. Now, so I don't think he was there when she was tempted, but I think the language is very clear that he was with her when she took of the fruit and ate. And the fact is, whether he was with her in the temptation or only with her when he ate the fruit doesn't really make a whole lot of difference in the end. The fact is, he did nothing to stop her, and he took and ate of the fruit itself. Now, this begs the question for me that I think we all need to ask, and that is this, why did he do it? 
We know why she did it. It tells us very clearly, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that Eve was deceived. She was tricked. She thought this would be a good thing, and for whatever reason, she bought into the lie. But Adam was not deceived at all. He, he, he was not deceived. So I want to know, why would you do it, man? What, what, what? Come on, step up to the plate. What, what were you doing? Now, in the end, the Bible gives us one statement about Adam's motivation, only one. And that's in uh, Genesis 3.17. It says this, And to Adam God said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife. You listened to the voice of your wife. That's the only thing that it ever says about Adam's motivation. He listened to the voice of his wife. Now, we don't know what Eve said to him. In Genesis 3, uh, 6, it only says she gave and he ate. But then God says, you listen to what your wife said. So we know she said something to him to convince him to... Now, now, what did she say? I don't know. You know, maybe she cried. Maybe she said, oh, Adam, if you love me, you'll, you'll, you'll take of this fruit. I don't know. Right? Maybe he, maybe he felt pressured from her, right? I mean, after all, does everybody know what Hezekiah 3.16 says? If mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Maybe, maybe, and there is no Hezekiah 3.16, just in case any of y'all go looking in your Bible for that. I just, I just made that one up. The point was, she said something to, to whatever reason, she got him to do what she wanted. In the end, he was weak instead of strong. Instead of being a leader, he was submissive to her. And whatever the reason, whatever his motivation, God condemns him for listening to the voice of his wife instead of listening to the voice of God uh, himself. Ultimately, Adam's actions showed that he loved her more than he loved God. He put her, uh, her voice and her desires and her wants ahead of the voice and desires and wants of God. Somebody uh, not too long ago came up and asked me, they were struggling with, a, with a, a verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, you have to love me more than your mama, more than your daddy, more than your wife, more than your children. And they said, I don't understand that. Well, go look at Adam and Eve. She, he loved her more than he loved God. And look where it got us. You have to put God first. I have to put God first ahead of your parents, ahead of your children, ahead of your spouse. He has to come first, and then everything else lines up. Adam didn't do that. Adam got the order way out of whack, and of course, it, it got us all in trouble. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Now, this is, this is all of a sudden, there is a completely new reality that they've ate of this fruit. And by the way, I don't think there's anything magical about this fruit. They, they just disobeyed God, right? And when they did that, it says their eyes were open. Now, they weren't blind. They weren't physically blind. They could see everything. Remember, Eve said she looked at the fruit and saw that it was nice to the eyes. I mean, they could physically see. It wasn't that they were blind. This is a, this is a metaphor. Their eyes are open. It's, a, it's, a, it's spiritually or emotionally or, or in whatever way, their eyes are now open and they look at themselves and they think, wow, we're naked. Right Now, what in the world is going on here? They're in the same garden. They're under the same sky. They're surrounded by the same creatures. They're looking across at the same spouse they had ten minutes ago or five minutes ago. But something has drastically changed. Okay, Now, 
Here we have the very first, and this is, this is really kind of mind-boggling to me, and it's really hard to think all this through. It, it, when you think about what is the very first consequence of sin, and it turns out the very first consequence of sin is that they're self-conscious about their bodies, that they look at themselves and they're, they're ashamed. They, they don't want the other person to see them without any clothes on. Now this is, remember back in Genesis 2.25, the Bible tells us very clearly the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So something has drastically changed between them two, the way that, they, that they, they look at each other. Now, there's no reason to think that before they saw each other as beautiful and now they see each other as ugly. There's nothing in the Scripture that says anything about that. I mean, physically, we would suspect that they both, they had no flaws. But something has, has, has happened here. Something has drastically changed in the way that they they look at one another. So why? You know, I mean, this stuff just... You start thinking this stuff through. Why? What changed the, in, their, in their relationship? Well, let me tell you. There are three things that happen to somebody when they sin. And this happened to Adam and Eve. And it happens to, 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 to John and Jane Doe. And it happens to you and I. This, everybody, this happens to us when we sin. Three things. The first thing is guilt. You are guilty and you feel guilty. The second thing is that guilt leads to alienation from others. And you'll see that here in just a second. Anytime we feel guilt, we feel alienated. That, that alienates us from other people. And of course, it alienates us from God. Those three things happen to every single human being that sins. It happened to Adam and Eve, and it happens to, to you and, and I. Now, let's ask the question another way. Why would Adam be self-conscious around Eve? Let's, let's, let's bring this down to Adam and Eve. Why would he be self-conscious around her and vice versa? Why would she be self-conscious of her body now around him? Well, I want you to think about this. He's self-conscious now because he has become alienated from her. You see, Eve, by taking of that fruit, has proven she's a selfish person now. She has put herself above God. And, and by doing so, she's put herself above Adam. She has become a selfish person, therefore she is no longer safe. Okay? So Adam feels self-conscious around her because he knows she's selfish. She puts herself above God. She puts, she'll, put, she'll definitely put herself above me. And that leaves me open to... She, 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 she would put me down for her own sake. She would judge me for her own sake. See, suddenly my nakedness is precarious because I don't trust her anymore. See, that's what, when guilt comes in, all of a sudden it's, it, we alienate from one another, even our own spouse. There's this idea, man, she might judge me. And so I, it, it's, it, it's this weird feeling of self-consciousness and it shows up very first in the fact that they, they don't have any clothes. On the other hand, my wife might be the safest person in the world, but my own guilt makes me feel self-conscious. In other words, I, I, I might be dressed up and fancy and look great, but inside I know I'm not worthy. I know there's something wrong with me. And so that simple, open innocence of nakedness feels the exact opposite of what I feel on the inside, so I want to cover it up. Okay? So that guilt and the alienation from others... See, Eve feels the same way. Here's Adam, and Adam 
he, he broke covenant with God. He is a selfish person now. He has put himself above God and above me. He's, he's apt to judge me. He's apt to put me down. If it becomes between me and him, he's going to choose him. And by the way, you'll see that in a few minutes, that Adam does exactly that. Everybody with me here? See, that alienation comes in. Now we look at other people and we don't trust them anymore. See, just like Adam, she's guilty, same thing. Adam could be the safest person in the world, but now she feels internally unworthy. And it doesn't match up with being this open person on the outside, and so she feels shame. Now here's the thing about this. This is amazing when you think about this. You think, are you sure that's what happened to them, Derek? Absolutely, I'm sure, because we see this played out every single day over and over and over with children. You see, children come into this world, and every child that comes into this world is absolutely shameless, right? They have no shame. You can take their clothes off. They run around. They got no concept of nudity. They got no concept, do they? But what happens to children is they begin to grow. They begin to grow in the knowledge of good and evil. And as they grow and mature, they understand, I can't trust that person. They might judge me. Everybody with me? See, they begin to know the difference between right and wrong. And so they begin to do wrong. Uh, we were down at the beach this week, and uh, Ella Kate was down there, and, and uh, a little friend of hers named Gunner was there, and Gunner was in the kitchen, and somebody did something, and he's four years old, and he said, that's not fair. And I thought, man, how did, isn't that amazing? Four years old, he said, that's not right. That's not fair. See, they begin to grow. They know what's right and what's wrong. And now, once they grow in the knowledge of good and evil, they know... I'm doing wrong, so they have a sense of guilt. That sense of guilt alienates them from other people because they know other people are wrong too. And so they look at other people and say, they'll judge me, they'll use me, they'll put me down for their own sake, they're selfish. See, the fact is, it's, it's pretty clear. You have no knowledge of good and evil, you have no shame. But even as a child grows in the knowledge of good and evil, shame comes and they begin to cover themselves up. And it's the exact same thing that happened with, with Adam and Eve. So the shame of nakedness arises from two sources between them. First is their own internal guilt, and the second is the alienation from their, from their spouse. See, we still struggle with this today. Even in our marriages, when we have, in our marriages, when we're as close as two people can get, the fact is, is at our core, we still, still tend to be selfish. And our spouse knows that. And that's why you can't never have perfect integrity and perfect innocence and perfect purity in a, in a marriage. Because there's always that sense of guilt. There's always that sense of, of, of alienation that exists between us. And we have to work all the time to, over, to overcome that. The same thing happened with Adam and Eve when they first disobeyed God and ate that fruit. Let's look at verse 7 again, see what they did about it. The eyes both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Now here, here's, this is just, this is really hard to explain. Why didn't they cover their face? Why didn't they cover their hands? Why didn't they cover their feet? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's, it's the same with us today, right? I mean, it's just this, 
I don't know, it's very, very difficult to understand. It, it, it's almost, see, they, all they know is they look down and they think, man, I'm naked. We gotta, I gotta do something about this. And they go out and they make clothing. And it literally said, and by the way, this takes time. Because it says they sewed fig leaves together. They didn't just grab one big one and walk around like this all day. They sewed them together, which took time to do. Okay? So in their nakedness, they just felt too vulnerable. So they try to remedy the situation by clothing themselves. Now, this is a really interesting question. Was this a right thing to do, or was it a wrong thing to do? Just think about that for a second. They, they've got this shame, and they attempt to cover their shame by making the, themselves clothing uh, out of the only thing they could figure to do it out of, which was some fig leaves. Is it a right thing to do, or was it a wrong thing to do? Well, it turns out it's the right thing to do. And we know it's the right thing to do because in Genesis 3.21, it says the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for his, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. If it was a sinful thing to do, God would not have clothed them, would he? He wouldn't have participated in their sin. He wouldn't have enhanced their sin. It turns out it was actually the right thing to do. They actually did the right thing for the wrong reasons, okay? It, see, it turns out that clothing yourself is the right response to shame. Now, we do it for the wrong reason, the same reason they do. We do it to hide our shame. But I'll remind you once again, God is never interested in hiding sin. He, he's never interested in covering up shame. That's not why God ordains clothes for us. Not because it conceals, but because it confesses. You see, in the Garden of Eden, we lost something. We had perfect purity, perfect innocence, perfect integrity. And we lost that. And God ordains clothes for us because it confesses as we walk around every day, we've lost something. We lost the glory that we had in the garden. And we clothe ourselves as a symbol of the fact that it confesses what, that we are not what we should be. Again, God's not interested in hiding shame, but He is interested in us confessing it, and that's exactly what our clothing does. Now, by the way, one practical implication of this is you'll see people, these nudists and stuff, run around today and saying, we want to get back to the way it was. That is not freedom. That is rebellion. God has ordained that you wear clothes. He did that with Adam and Eve when He clothed them. So when you see people running around, you know, less and less and less clothes, that is a rebellion against the moral reality that we, that we live in today. That's a rebellion against God to do that. So just keep that in mind. That's just one practical implication. So here they are in the garden. <clears throat> their purity has been marred. Their innocence, their integrity. The, the very part of their body... That was their greatest source of joy. And by the way, the greatest, it, it creates life. The very part of their body that gives life is the part of their body that they're now ashamed of. And they feel the need to hide it from God, and they feel the need to hide it from, from one another. Now, you and I should be able to easily understand why they did what they did. You see, in, your, in our fallen state, it is natural. It is, it is natural for us to want to hide shame and hide guilt. We do that 
uh, like a fish swims in water. When we get shame and guilt, our first inclination is hide it. Yes or no? That, that's as natural as a, as a fish in water. That's just what we do. It's all, you could almost call it a human instinct. And the same thing is still true today. It was true for them, and it's true for you and I. Now, our modern society has a different view. We've got what I call this psychotherapeutic culture today. And, and everybody's got guilt. Everybody's got shame. And we're all running around trying to get rid of it. And, and, and the psychologists and psychiatrists will tell you, well, you know, do meditation or, or do acupuncture or, or do these, these whatever. I mean, they've got all these different types of self-help things. And the end goal is just accept yourself as you are. Yes or no? Just accept yourself the way you are. Don't feel guilty. Don't, don't feel any shame. See, everybody wants to get, wants to get rid of this. But the problem is, those, all those other ways are just what I would call modern fig leaves. They're just ways to cover your guilt that when you stand before the Lord one day, that ain't gonna, it's going to suffice for nothing. It's going to count for absolutely nothing. God has a specific way that we are to get rid of our guilt and our shame. And what's interesting about this third chapter of Genesis is it's always been the same. When he comes to Adam and Eve, he's already got a plan for them. He's got a way for them to get rid of their guilt and shame if they'll only listen. Now, I want to stop right here because I want us to understand something that happened to Adam and Eve. See, it is imperative that we... All the Bible really says is, man, they were... They did, they did, they, at one point in chapter 2, they were naked and didn't know it. Now in chapter 3, they're naked and they do know it. But see, we need to see underneath that to understand the absolutely drastic change that happened to Adam and Eve and by association that happens to you and I. You see, their response to God shows us uh, something called total depravity. Now, if you've never heard this term before, this is a, a, a theological term that we throw around sometime. It's called total depravity to, des- to describe the state of human beings. Okay? Now, this is the biblical teaching that man's nature is corrupt throughout. I mean, from the top of our head to the soles of our feet to our very innermost being, we are corrupt. And it's called total depravity. Now, let me explain something. The word total doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they could be. That Some people, when they hear that sometimes, they misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that. There are people who are worse than others. I mean, let's face it. There are people that are doing horrific things, and there are people who are staying in their marriages and, and paying their taxes, and, and we get all that, right? There are different degrees. That's not, that's not what total depravity means. The word total means that we are corrupt throughout. It means our corruption, our sinfulness, extends to all parts of us. Our mind, our will, our soul, our, our, our body, everything. Now, Scripture teaches this to us over and over and over. I'll give you a few Scriptures. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 7, there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. 
Romans, going into the New Testament, Romans 3, 10, and 11. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is nobody who understands. There is none who seeks God. Now, out of the whole... I, I looked at the stats the other day. Right now, there are 7.5 billion people on the earth. And if left to their own devices, how many of them are seeking God? Anybody? Zero. None. See, that's what, that's what Romans tells us. Nobody seeks after God. None. That None of them seek Him. That's why we know, the Bible tells us clearly, nobody can come unto the Father except the Spirit draw Him, right? Nobody left to their own heart, because their heart is deceitfully sick. They can't come to God. There's a scripture in Romans 8, 7, 9. Listen to this. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Read those next words. Nor can it do so. The sinful person cannot seek God. They cannot submit to God. It's not that they're not willing. It's that they're unable. They can't do it. That's how corrupt we are. Titus 1.15 says this, To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even your mind and your conscience are defiled. I mean, everybody see the corruption? It's all throughout us. One more, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and this is how Paul describes this state, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, just like everybody else. Now, if you go on that and read that, it's one of the best scriptures in the world. But God, because He loved us, made us alive. He did that, not us. We, we can't even come to God. We're unable to, to submit to Him, to repent. We can't do any of that. He has to come to us. See, that's Adam and Eve were in the same boat. See, our depravity... Our corruption is so ingrained that even when God confronts us, even when He comes into our face, we will do anything in our world to get. We'll do anything that we can to get away from Him. In fact, we'll do always do one of two things. The first thing we try to do is avoid Him. The second thing we'll do is, if He finally catches up with us, is we'll blame somebody else. And we see this with our parents, with our great 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 whoever they were, grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents, forefathers, whatever, Adam and Eve. We see how they did. Watch this. Look at verse 8. So they've sinned. They're alienated now from one another. They feel guilty. They've sewed loincloths together to hide their shame. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I said three things happened to sinners. Number one, you feel guilt. Number two, you're alienated from others. Number three, you're alienated from God. See, this relationship is now broken, and it's so broken that they literally avoid Him. They go out of their way not to think of... They don't want to... We see this all over the place. Our friends, our neighbors, our family. And you think, how can you not stop and think about the most important thing in the world, which is your eternal soul? And they go fishing and they go shopping, and they go golfing, and they go all, they're just doing all these things and not because they're avoiding God. They don't want to think about it. 
They don't want to think about those things, right? Adam and Eve did the same thing. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, and we'll talk about this more next week. He didn't call to Eve. He didn't say, Eve, what did you do? He said, Adam, where are you? I put you in charge. Come here. I need to talk to you. He called to the man and said, where are you? Now, before we look at what God does, I want to make sure we understand what he doesn't do. Have you ever thought about this? He could have just killed Adam and Eve and started over. Right? He could have said, man, you two, you, y'all screwed it up. Get out of here. Let me, get, let me go create another Adam and another Eve, and let's start this thing over again. Okay? He, he could have come to Adam just, Adam, you're an idiot. Right? You're so stupid. Look at all the stuff I did for you, and, and, what, and you've messed it all up. He could have come with that kind of attitude, right? He could have waited a while. He could have let them stew in their fear and, and, and just kind of pay for it for what they did. After all, they deserved it. But he doesn't do that at the at beginning. Even from the very beginning, God is gracious. God is gracious. He, does, he doesn't come to Adam and Eve looking to punish them. He comes looking to save them. He comes looking to redeem them. See, I think even many Christians, when you ask, when you ask them about Genesis chapter 3, I think a lot of us have the wrong idea. When we think about this chapter, we, we think that God came looking for Adam and Eve. You know, he, he put a curse on them. He, he kicked them out of the garden and he locked the door behind them and said, I'm done with you. But see, that's not the story that we see in Genesis chapter 3 at all. In fact, we see God being gracious to them, extending favor to them when he had no reason to. Listen, you and I, be quite honest with you, we have every reason to sin because we're born with a sin nature. They had no reason to sin at all. None. Everything was stacked in their favor. Everything was given to them. They were pure and innocent and had perfect integrity. And God just says, one thing you can't do. They, they had no reason to do what they did. And still God comes to them graciously uh, seeking them. Even his expelling them from the garden is gracious. You understand, he could have left them in the garden in their fallen state, and they would have lived forever. As long as they had access to the tree of life, they would have stayed there forever in the fallen state. So even getting them out of the garden is a gracious act, so they don't have to live that way forever. It is a chapter which should give us great hope, uh, not, not, not pour guilt on us, but give us great hope that there's hope for our guilt. So God comes to Adam. He says to him, where are you? Now let's be clear, when God asks a question, he's not looking for information. Understand that? When God asks you a question, he already knows the answer. What he's trying to get you to do is answer it. He's trying to get you to think about where you are. What what state are you in, right? See, he's asked the question to Adam, and he wants Adam to think, yeah, where am I? I've messed up, right? Something has is, something is completely changed inside of me. What am I supposed to do now? So he says, where are you? And the answer is, God, I've sinned. I've messed up. I'm lost. And that's the same answer for every sinner today when he says, where are you? I've messed up, God. See, that is what Adam should do. So let's see what he does. Look at verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice he does not admit his sin. He should have said, I was afraid because I sinned. I was afraid because I disobeyed. 
He doesn't say that. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. See, he still will not admit his sin. Now, listen, he's always been naked, right? That, nothing has changed there. What's changed is sin. What's changed is disobedience. That's the issue. That's the problem. That's what God wants him to see. But he can't admit that. Verse 11, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Listen, God never ignores sin or brushes it aside. That's what we want to do. He will not do that. That would minimize the seriousness of sin, and that would compromise His holiness and His, his role as, as judge. He always confronts us. He will always get right to the point with you and I, and He does it with Adam. So God is very... Uh, pointed. He's very direct, but he's not, again, he's not doing it to judge. He's doing it to be gracious. He's doing it so that we can see, yes, God, I've messed up. I'm a sinner. Help me, because there's nowhere else for me to go. So God, after asking, where are you, he asked a second question, who told you that you were naked? See, again, this question is tended to make Adam think. Who told me that? Nobody's told me that. I just know it inherently inside. Something has changed inside of me. I've got this inner voice now called a conscience that's telling me I'm naked, that's telling me I'm guilty. He's trying to get Adam to think about all this. I mean, again, just think about it, Adam. What brought you to the point? He wants him to admit that that the knowledge came from disobeying God. Now, his next question is very direct. Have, he just gets right to the point. Did you do what I told you not to do? Did you eat from the tree that I specifically told you not to eat from? That's a simple yes or no, isn't it? The answer, yes, no. It's, this ain't rocket science. God's kind of put it out there. Adam, just admit what you did. Just tell me what you did. See, for Adam and us, it is still a fearful thing to be a guilty sinner before a holy God. It's terrifying. And instead of coming to God and doing what he should have done and just lay it out there, which is what God wants every sinner to do, he does the same thing that every sinner after, for year after year after year after year has done. He evades and he blames. Look at verse 12. The man said, The woman who you gave me, the woman who you gave me, listen, it's either her fault or it's your fault, but it ain't my fault, right? She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Again, what do guilty sinners do? They avoid, and when they can avoid no longer, they blame. They evade. The woman that you gave me. Remember what we said earlier? Why does Eve now feel self-conscious of Adam? Because Adam is selfish, and she knows that when the push comes to shove, he'll put himself first. Guess what he just did? Guess what he just did? She did it. See, that's the point. They are now alienated. They're self-insist in their relationship. That's why they're shamed. That's why they have to cover themselves up. I can't trust him anymore, and he just proved it by blaming her when push came to shove. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, again, she does the exact same thing. She can't blame Adam. But she can blame the devil, and she does. Again, first they avoid, then they evade, and then they blame. When there's sin in a person's life, when there's sin in your, in your life and in my life, 
what we most need to do is confess our disobedience to God. That's the, that's the thing we need to do. Yet here they are, they're blaming someone else. It's the woman's fault. God, it's your fault. God, it's the devil's fault. It's, it's somebody's fault. Yeah, I did it, but there's always a good reason why I did it. Instead of just saying, you know what? I did it. Help me, God. Tell me what I need to do. Listen, in the end, Satan had promised them freedom. Had he, did he not? You're going to be like God. You're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. Man, it's, it's going to be great. God's trying to hold you down. He's trying to keep you back. He promised them that by eating, they would be like God. And they would free themselves from this control that somehow God was trying to get over them. But that's not what they got, is it? They didn't get freedom. In fact, they got the very opposite. They got slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to guilt. Slavery to shame. Slavery to fear. And they would live under that every single day. Next week, we turn to verses 14 through 24. And we're going to see what God does. He's going to judge Satan. He's going to judge uh, the man, and he's going to judge the woman. And what we're going to see is his judgment has repercussions for you and I even today, both in our, our personal lives, in our work life, in our marriages, um, through, through every aspect of everything that we do. So if you want to read ahead uh, next week, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, uh, we'll talk about the judgment. Let's pray. Father.